Hey, in case you're new, we're in a series right now called Turning Points, where we're looking in the Gospel of John at how people encountered Jesus and how he began to change their lives. Now, I, I, I really like this series for a number of reasons, but one is that it just kind of takes us back to the basics of who we are and why we're here on the planet. You know, people will often ask, what is your vision? What is God looking to do through us individually as disciples and as a church corporately? And the answer to that is crystal clear. God wants to use us to help introduce people to Jesus Christ and then to help them grow in their relationship with him. It is not about religion, folks. This is about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And as amazing as it may seem, God wants to use us in that process. Well, before we take a deep dive into today's text, uh, I want to share a bit of news. As some of you have heard, I am now a grandfather. <laughs> Woo! Yeah! Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for sharing our joy. Little Bexley, you can see a picture of her two days old, that one was, uh, it was born last Sunday afternoon, six pounds, eight ounces, and uh, mom and dad and baby are all doing great, they're all healthy, all flourishing, and so thank you for your prayers, thank you for your excitement and sharing in our joy. But I just want you all to know, I just entered a very grand and wonderful club. I joined the grandparent club, okay? Now, some of you are there, and, and you tried to tell me, but I just couldn't get it. But now I do. Now I understand. And you got to understand this now, because when you join the grandparent club, what comes with that membership is you get a right, you get a license to gush about your grandchildren. <laughs> and so that's what I've been doing all week long. Tuesday morning, I went through the drive through window at Starbucks. <laughs> and as I'm waiting for my venti iced Americano with non-fat milk and three stevia, you know, the workers are trained to have chit-chat with you and the guy's kind of leaning out the window talking to me as I'm sitting there in my car, and he probably wanted to talk about the weather, but I wanted to talk about Bexley. <laughs> and so I just, he said, how was your weekend? I said, oh, man, never been better. My daughter just gave birth to a beautiful baby girl, and so I just kind of glowed there at Starbucks. <laughs> Next day, I'm sitting in the sauna at the YMCA, sweats just pouring off me. Somebody I don't know is sitting there in the sauna on the other side and said, how's your day going? <laughs> Poor, unsuspecting person. <laughs> so I talked about Bexley, and I said, hey, I'm a new grandparent. I just joined the grandparent club, and so everywhere I go, I'm glowing about Bexley. Later in the week, guess what? I was over at the coffee shop. I bumped into Bill Minchin. It, was, it wasn't planned. I was just standing there waiting. Bill walked up. Bill is a part of the grandparent club. So what do people who are a part of the grandparent club talk about? Oh, we pull our phones out. We show pictures. Both of us have our grandchildren as our screensaver on our phone. I mean, 
So we just glowed about our grandchildren. Now, did you know that the Bible, Jesus actually said something in Matthew chapter 12 that explains, it explains this phenomenon of why grandparents glow about their children. Do you know what Jesus said? He said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And we gush about our grandchildren because we love them so much. We're so excited about a relationship with them and all that that means. And so we naturally just with joy talk about it. Now, in the church, we sometimes talk about witnessing for Jesus Christ. But you need to understand that witnessing is not like this box you check off. Yeah, I'm supposed to do that. I really don't want to. It's kind of a bummer, but I guess I better say something. Check. No. Ideally, witnessing should just be talking about the excitement of what Jesus has done and is doing in your life. And it just flows out naturally. He's forgiven my sins. Wow. He's adopted me into his family. He is changing my life from the inside out. My whole perspective on the future is different because of Jesus Christ in my life. And just naturally, that flows out of us. That's, that's what witnessing is supposed to be like. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, if there were nothing else that came out of this series, and I believe there will be a lot of good things, as God brings his word to life and drives it supernaturally home to our hearts, but if nothing else came out of this series, I would want us to understand this. God puts people in your life for a purpose. There may be someone sitting near you now. It's not random or by accident. It's purposeful. You may bump into someone tomorrow. And God has a design in that. Someone in your classroom, your neighborhood, on your sports team, down at the gym where you train and work out. Someone in the cubicle next to yours, someone in your company. And God has a design. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we get obnoxious like us grandparents can be a little bit. Oh, no, no. I'm suggesting that we winsomely and persuasively represent Jesus to other people and let the abundance of our heart just come out naturally as we share the love of Jesus Christ with other people. I want to tell you, folks, people just don't tend to come to Christ out of the blue. Do you know what I mean by that? Survey after survey, study after study has been done on this. What kind of, what are the antecedents? What leads up to a person coming to genuine faith in Christ? And the results are staggeringly clear. It is relationships that God uses. Let me say it again. People almost never come to Jesus Christ just, quote, out of the blue. There's almost always a meaningful relationship where God has used someone else to help point them to Jesus Christ. So today, I want us to consider Nathaniel's story in John 1. Footnote, for those of you wondering, is this preacher ever going to get out of John chapter 1? Good news, we are. Even today, we're going to slightly get out of it. But next week, you don't want to miss because we're going to be in John chapter 3. And there may be no turning point story more relevant, perhaps, to today's culture 
than the one we'll look at next weekend. It is so vital that we understand as we look at the turning point of Nicodemus. But today I want you to see three powerful things about Nathaniel's turning point, and they all come directly out of the text. Here's the first observation. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew who Nathanael was. I'm reading now in verse 47. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. Now, I like the way the old King James renders that. It says, an Israelite in whom is no guile. No guile. That's not a word we use a lot. It means here's a straight shooter. Here's someone who tends to be brutally honest. And that was quite a compliment that Jesus gave to Nathaniel. Why did he say that? I think there may be a clue as we look in verse 45. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, ha, can anything good come from there, Nathaniel asked. Come and see, said Philip. I don't know what I think about Nathaniel right now. I mean, isn't that response a little rude and obnoxious? I mean, if you're being introduced by a friend of yours to someone new, and they say, hey, I just want, here's Chad, I'd just like for you guys to meet, and the person you're meeting, Chad, uh, your friend says, hey, you know, you're from Albany. And the person says, oh, Albany, oh my goodness, I feel so bad for you. <laughs> oh, Albany, Albany's the armpit of the world. Can anything good come out of Albany? I mean, if a person responded that way, do you think they'd be your best friend? I doubt it. You would think, ah, this guy is rude. He's so opinionated. But Jesus says, look, here's an Israelite in whom there's nothing false. There's no guile. Some translations say pretense. Do you know why he said that? I think it was in part because Nathaniel was being honest about Nazareth. Nazareth was not on the top 10 list of most desirable places to live in Palestine. It didn't have a ton going for it. So in one sense, Nathaniel is just being kind of brutally honest here. And I believe that sadly, honesty is not a big value in our culture. We tend to kind of throw shade or put a spin on things. We tend to value political correctness more than we do honesty. Now, don't get me wrong, I think there's some value in certain aspects of political correctness. People ask me, hey, what do you think about our culture? Isn't it just so politically correct it makes you want to throw up? And I, I'm pretty quick to say if I'm asked about that, no, I think there's some good things about it. For instance, I think it's important to be sensitive to the racial and sexist slurs that are implied in some of our vocabulary. And so I think it's wise. Uh, you'll hear me trying to use humankind instead of mankind. Why would I do that? 
because the male of the species has been dominant in many times very unhealthy ways. And so to use the word mankind just may seem to reinforce that. So it's wise to be sensitive. But here's the problem when we take PC to the extreme. We start getting dishonest. We start saying silly things, things that are far from true and far from reality. For instance, you look at a guy here, and he's, he's got a nose like Mount Rushmore. I mean, this guy has a huge nose. But you don't say he's got a big nose. You say he's nasally gifted. <laughs> right? He's nasal. Oh, that man, he's nasally gifted. That's amazing. Someone's bald, you don't say they're bald. You say they've got a comb-free head. You know? Yeah. It's a good thing. It's a pleasant thing. It's a wonderful thing. Someone's really, really short. You don't say they're short. They're vertically challenged. And on and on we go. But in contrast to our spin today, there's a refreshing honesty in Scripture. And I like that about the Bible. Let me give you one example. In the book of Titus, we read some interesting words. Now, Paul had sent Titus to lead a congregation in the island known as Crete. It's right in the Mediterranean. I've never been to Crete. I would love to go someday, okay? Uh, I understand it. it is gorgeous. It has beautiful beaches. The water around the Mediterranean is just stunningly beautiful. But, but listen to what Paul says later as he writes to Titus, who's leading the church on the island of Crete. He quotes one of their own prophets, and he says these words. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul says, this testimony is true. Now, I don't know if I'll ever get to Crete, but if I do, I'll tell you one verse I'm not going to preach on. And if you're from Crete today, I apologize. I'm just sharing the word of God and what it says. But we wouldn't dare talk in those honest terms today. We would sue somebody if they were that brutally honest. But what I want you to consider is that when we're honest about other things, we tend to be more honest about ourselves. But if we're all into spin and shade, if we're all into being just politically correct about certain things, we tend to be less willing to come to the truth about ourselves. I'll never forget years ago when I first met a woman named Peggy Jones at Grace. Now, uh, Peggy is in heaven now. Uh, she uh, was one of the best servants of God our church has ever known and was very well loved by so many people. But when I first met her, she had just come for the first time and her sister, who was at Grace, had invited her. This is years ago when we were in a little building over on 3 Cerrone Commercial Drive. And I walked up to Peggy after I had just preached, the service was over, and I said, hey, I understand it's your first time here. Well, welcome. What did you think of the service? And she looked me in the eye and said, well, your sermon was entirely too long, and you lost people there in the middle of it. You know, if you really want to keep attention, you need to tighten that thing up and make it a lot shorter. 
And her sister who'd introduced her is just dying a thousand deaths right now. She's standing right there. She just wants to crawl under the carpet. She's so embarrassed that her sister is so brutally honest. And I smiled and said, Peggy, wow, that is great input. Thank you for that. You know what? I always want to improve and grow and become more effective. You've given me a lot to think about. Thank you so much. Peggy Jones never missed a service after that. And the amazing thing is that this woman who was so ready to be brutally honest about certain things, a few months later got brutally honest about herself and where she was with God. And she recognized, I am a sinner, I am alienated from God, and Peggy repented of her sin, invited Christ to be her Savior and Lord, and man, did he change her life. She went on years of effective service in this church, representing Jesus really well. When we get honest about, ourse- about other things, we're more likely to be honest about ourselves. Friends, we experience God most powerfully when we get brutally honest. That's why the psalmist David said in Psalm 51, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Jesus knew who Nathaniel was. And you and I have got to learn that we really experience God powerfully when we get honest with God and with ourselves. I invite you to listen now to another turning point story. This one is from our own pastor, Matt Saxon, pastor of the Latham campus. I want us to turn our attention to the screens now and listen as Pastor Matt shares how God brought him to his turning point. Uh, I grew up uh, the youngest of three children. Uh, When I was about five or six years old, my mother and father uh, were divorced, and uh, my brother and sister and I grew up uh, living with my mother primarily, and occasionally on the weekends we would stay with my father. It was an interesting childhood uh, being raised by a single mom. She uh, was and is a believer, so she would raise us in the faith to the best of her ability, and we would go to church regularly on the weekends. Uh, The few weekends out of each month that we spent with my dad were quite interesting, however, because he is a pretty uh, staunch skeptic and somewhere between agnostic and atheist. So essentially anything we were learning in the church or from my mother was kind of being uh, at least questioned, if not challenged, uh, by my dad on the weekend. So it made for an interesting upbringing and being exposed to a lot of different points of view on just about every matter of life. When I was nine years old, uh, over the course of one particular summer, my mother uh, sent me to a summer camp uh, in the mountains of South Carolina. And it was a boys' summer camp, and I was there for an entire week. And at the end of each day, after dinner, we would sort of hike up this small little hill slash mountain. And when we would get to the top, there would be a chapel service. Well, at the end of this particular week, when I was nine years old over the summer, at this chapel, the gospel was presented in a very clear and compelling way. And while I had always grown up knowing about Jesus and knowing about the cross and knowing that Jesus was the Son of God, 
something happened during that particular chapel. Uh, it was a very overwhelming experience where I became very convinced and compelled to confess my sin to God, not due to any pressure or any sensationalism. I just knew that what I was hearing about my sinfulness and the holiness of God and the grace shown through Christ was so compelling and real and obvious. I think if God would have appeared in that room, I wouldn't have been any more convinced. I was so persuaded that it was true. And it was at that time that I came up front and I prayed to receive Christ. I confessed my sins. I trust on his finished work on the cross. And upon getting back home uh, to Columbia, South Carolina, began the process through that church of learning a little bit more about baptism. And I was baptized later on that calendar year. You know, my turning point was one that wasn't particularly dramatic. Uh, I came to faith pretty young, so I didn't have too many sensational or taboo sins or any real bad habits or addictions. But be that as it may, I very much was a sinner in need of the grace of God, and God broke through to the simple gospel, through the simple gospel message that I heard at the chapel that day. My turning point is a simple one. It was hearing the gospel, being convicted by the Holy Spirit of the truth of that message, responding in faith and repentance, and later on growing in maturity and understanding that there are implications for being a follower of Jesus that go far beyond a belief system or going to a weekly house of worship, but something that would reach and touch every area of my life. Amen. All right. I love, I love, I love to hear those turning point stories. Well, Jesus knew who Nathaniel was, but secondly, I want you to consider that he knew where he was. Now, I find this part really, really provocative. I'm reading verse 48. How do you know me, Nathaniel asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. What a provocative statement. I saw you under the fig tree. Now, friends, one of the most transformative realizations we ever come to is that God sees us and knows not only who we are, but where we are. Did you realize that today? God knows where you are in your thinking, in your mindset, attitudinally, in your life, your level of hope or discouragement. He knows where you are and he knows what's going on. Over and over again in the Bible, it says that. We call it, theologically, the omniscience of God, that he is all-knowing. But specifically, Scripture says the eyes of the Lord see us. All the way back in Genesis 6, when it says the, there was so much wickedness on the earth that it literally, God's heart hurt over the wickedness. It says, in the midst of that, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Think of that. God's eyes fixed on Noah in the midst of all that wickedness and mess, and Noah found grace. We're told in the book of Deuteronomy over and over again to consider whether we're doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord or what is wrong in the eyes of the Lord, because God sees, make no mistake. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter reminds us that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. 
God is looking. And last week, I shared a verse that means a whole lot to me. Let me share it again. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is looking. And when he looks at your heart and mine today, I wonder what he sees there. But now I want us to consider this idea that Nathaniel was under the fig tree. It's interesting. In the Greek text, there is a definite article there. That's why it's translated the fig tree rather than a fig tree. I would ask you to consider that fig trees are often symbolic in Scripture. A couple of examples. Remember Adam and Eve? They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they suddenly had this awareness of their alienation from God. They were embarrassed about their own nakedness. And you remember, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. And so in that sense, fig leaves then are symbolic of human attempts on our own, our own ability where we try to deal with our own alienation from God and our own sinfulness. And we try to address that, but it's always inadequate. A little later, God clothed them with skins that he provided for them, but that meant that blood had to be shed. And so suddenly you have in Scripture, very early on, the first little foreshadowing, looking forward, that human sinfulness can only be addressed through sacrificial blood. And ultimately, that points us to to the atoning death of Christ on the cross. It's interesting how the Bible fits together so intricately in these ways. You've got that foreshadowing way back there, and then you've got the ultimate fulfillment of that in the atoning death of Christ on the cross where he died for our sins so that you and I could be forgiven. But fig leaves, human attempts to deal with our own sinfulness and alienation from God, and we want to hide from God so many times rather than be honest. Another example of how fig trees can be symbolic is when Jesus cursed a fig tree. You remember that incident? The last week of his earthly ministry, it's just before his crucifixion, he and his disciples walk by a fig tree and it looks magnificent on the outside. By the way, fig leaves are pretty good size usually. And so they make a good covering. They provide good shade, if you will. But there's no figs on the tree. It has no fruit. And Jesus spoke to it and cursed it. The next day they come by and it's all withered up. And the disciples ask, why? Why did you do this? And Jesus never gave a straight answer. But scholars are almost unanimous that that was a powerful, symbolic thing Jesus did. That fig tree represented what Judaism had become. With all of its religious bells and whistles, all of its pomp and circumstance, with all of its legalism and the bondages that it put on people, but it lacked the vital fruit that gave eternal life. And when Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree, he was saying, I see you as you really are and where you really are. And in all of your own attempts to deal with it in your own strength. I wonder if I'm talking to anyone today who may be hiding under the fig tree. 
You say, well, Pastor Rex, I'm a good person. You know, I'm a very religious churchgoer. Can I say respectfully, that's just a fig leaf. You say, but you don't understand. I'm better than most of the people that I know or work with. In fact, I know my neighbors are doing some horrible things, and I believe my good deeds really outweigh my bad deeds, and I ought to be good, good enough for God. I say, with all due respect, that's just a fig leaf. The only way your sin and mine can be adequately dealt with is through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. But if that's going to happen, we've got to be brutally honest about where we are. Jesus said to Nathaniel, I not only know who you are, I know exactly where you are today. And this is good news, good news. God knows where you are. He sees you under that fig tree. He knows where you are. And I find Nathanael's response interesting in verse 49. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. What a declaration that was. By the way, sometimes I'll hear preachers say, as they're talking about Matthew 16 or Mark chapter 8, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? You know, that little incident that happened at a place called Caesarea Philippi, and they give different answers. And then Simon Peter declares, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And sometimes I'll hear a preacher say, you know what, that's the first clear declaration in all the gospels of who Jesus is. Not really. In fact, right here in John chapter one, you've got four people in a row who clearly recognize who Jesus is. John the Baptist Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He recognized him for who he was. And then you've got Andrew who goes to Simon and says, we found the Messiah. He recognized him. And then you've got Philip who says, come, see the one. We found the one that Moses wrote about and which the prophets also spoke about. And then finally here, Nathaniel, who says, you're the son of God, you're the king of Israel. Hey, if someone were to put you on the spot today and ask you, who do you say Jesus is, could you make that kind of declaration? And the reason I ask that is because scripture is very clear that we all need to come to this point in our life. If we're going to have a turning point, like you've been hearing about from Pastor Matt today and from all these various people through the weeks if we're going to have that kind of turning point, it comes when we come to a place in our lives where we can declare who Jesus really is and recognize him for that and bow in submission to him. That's so important. It's a non-negotiable if we're going to have this divine turning point that God wants us to have. Well, there's one final observation I invite you to look at with me. He knew who he was. He knew where he was, and, and I would suggest to you, and this is very exciting to me, he knew of what he was capable. You see, one of the most exciting things to me as a pastor, when someone has a turning point, is for me, that represents all this amazing potential that God has put in a person of all the ways he could use them for his kingdom. And I think that's what Jesus is thinking here in this passage, verse 50. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. 
You shall see greater things than that. Wow. Greater things? Those are pregnant words. Those words are loaded with meaning. And then he added in verse 51, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's a bit of a head scratcher because we wonder what exactly was the fulfillment of that and we don't really know. Because there's not an incident later where clearly this was fulfilled, angels ascending and descending. I think at the very least, it may be more than this, but at the very least, this is at least a veiled reference back to Genesis 28, where a man named Jacob was on the run from God, running from God and his will. He bedded down that night to sleep in a place called Bethel. He put a stone under his head, and he had the weirdest freakiest dream you can imagine. In his dream, this man Jacob saw a stairway to heaven. I know you thought Led Zeppelin dreamed that up. Yeah. But no, it's in the Bible, Genesis 28, a stairway to heaven. And there were angels ascending and descending on this ladder-like stairway to heaven. And you know what Jacob's name was changed to? Israel. And Nathaniel is declaring here, now there's someone here greater than Israel. You are Jesus, the king of Israel. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, you've just seen the start of this. We haven't even scratched the surface yet. You're about to experience and see the work of God as I mold you and make you into something you could never dream. And by the way, three days later, we see a sampling of what that could look like. And I wanna close with this. Now remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions originally in scripture. Those were added much, much later. And so literally, the very next verse is here, chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, this is just three days, three days after Nathaniel has encountered Jesus. He's probably thinking, I don't know what I've signed up for. I'll tell you right now, I'm not adequate for this. I feel so weak. I feel so watery. I, uh, wow, Jesus is saying I've got great things in store, but boy, I'm not so sure right now. And then they go to this wedding, and you know the story. They run out of wine. And they go to Jesus wondering, what should we do? What should we do? And Jesus' mother Mary, who's there, says to these servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. By the way, Hands down, that's the best advice anybody ever gave anybody. Wow. In fact, I'll give it to you today. Just take Mary's word for it. Best advice anybody ever gave anybody. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. And you'll be good. All right? Just do it. So Jesus says, look, take these big jars, fill them up with water. With water, Lord? We're out of wine. Why do we dealing with water. Yeah, fill them up with water. And so they do what Jesus tells them to do, just out of a sense of obedience, over the, even though it seems so pointless. They go ahead and obey the Lord. And then they take it to the head table, the head master of the feast, just like he told them to do. 
And as they pour it out, what do they discover? That the water has turned to wine. Now let me say this to you, brothers and sisters, in closing. I believe there's a powerful lesson in that for us today in this 21st century. Because if you're anything like me, I feel so weak in my failure and my inadequacy. I feel so watery some days, so weak, like how could I ever do anything for God that would ever make a difference? But then I remember Mary's words. Whatever he says to you, do it. And I go ahead and obey anyway. And I go ahead and do what I know to do. And here's the thing that we discover when we do that. Although we feel so weak and watery, God takes that inadequate effort and he turns it into wine. He turns it into something that will be for our good and the good of others and for his glory. It's as though he's saying here, hey, hey, Philip, you remember when you went to talk to Nathaniel? You remember how inadequate you felt? You thought, Is he going to think I'm a religious nutcase? I mean, I, I just met Jesus myself. Who am I to go talk to him? And yet you obeyed anyway. And I took the water and turned it into wine. Andrew, do you remember? You had just met me. We had just had this encounter. And you thought about your brother Simon. He's your older brother. He's a very strong person. And you felt so inadequate and afraid. You thought to yourself, well, my big brother listened to me. Who am I to go share with him? And yet you did it. And I took the watery, weak you, Andrew, and I turned it into wine. Friends, there are so many things God puts in your life and mine that we feel inadequate for. But what we find over and over again is that as we come to God and pour our lives out for the sake of others and for the kingdom, he always comes through with the results. We may not see it immediately, but he always is working, always working through us as we pour our lives out for others. Let's remember that this week. Let's remember that as we encounter other people, that God puts people into our lives for a purpose. And whatever he says to you to do, do it. Father, thank you so much for the witness and the story and the turning point of Nathaniel. I believe there's powerful lessons there for us. And as we continue to work through John's gospel, I pray that you would remind us powerfully this week and going forward that you take our feeble, inadequate efforts and when we pour out our lives in service for you and others, you can turn the water into wine. You can take our feeble efforts and turn them into strength. Thank you that you do that. And thank you that you love us so much. You bring us to a turning point. And I pray that you would continue to blow our minds with what you have in store. In Jesus' name, amen.